That's going to be a good day, isn't it? They were longing for and hoping for, and we will see our Savior face to face. Ah. And I got to say, you guys sounded really good singing this morning. You brought your singing voices. Well done. It's a gift to each other. We're going to learn about that later in Colossians. But hey, thank you for singing today. I was blessed by hearing you declare together our love and adoration for the Lord. Let's pray together as we prepare to worship him through the preaching, hearing, and receiving of his word. Father, what a great, grateful people we are to think about all that you have done for us in Christ, how you made a way when there was no way, and how now you have prepared us and made us fit to step into your presence for all of eternity. And God, how we long for the day when your son will return and make right all that is wrong, to set right, to make peace where there is no peace. Uh, Help us, Father, today. Set our hope fully on that day. And Father, now as we turn to worshiping you through the preaching, the hearing, and receiving of your word, it's my prayer your Holy Spirit would come and he would do his illuminating work in us, that he would open our hearts, our minds, our spirits to the reality of who you are revealing yourself to be through your word and who you are calling us to be as your people in light of the image of your son so that we can glorify you in greater ways. And that is our desire, God, to glorify you more. And Father, it's my prayer as always in this moment of preaching that you would increase and I would decrease. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You know, religion is a tricky thing. It's not always bad. Sometimes religion can be really good. But sometimes it can also be really bad. Now, here's what I mean by the word religion when I use it. I mean the practice of our faith or the expression of our faith. And there are good and right ways that we as a people are called to express our belief as a people, to express our ultimate delight in Jesus and praying and singing and studying the word of God and embracing certain behaviors as a people. James even tells us in his book, chapter 1, verse 27, that there's a type of religion that's pure and undefiled. And it is in taking care of widows and orphans in their distress. So from the testimony of Scripture, it's clear that not all religion is bad. There are at least some aspects of religion or the expression of our faith that are and can be good. But I think we also know that religion can become a bad thing. And that's what we do, right? We take things that are meant for good, gifts given to us by God and manipulate them and pervert them to where they're no longer about him, but they're about us. You see, when religion is not birthed from faith, it can become legalism. When religion is not grounded in faith, it can lead to idolatry. Yes, even our religious practice, even the The things we've gathered to do here in this room today can become idols if we're not careful. We can worship worship instead of the object of our worship. That's what Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors in America, says. Our our hearts are, are idol factories. It's amazing how creative we can be in fashioning gods in our own image instead of being fashioned into the one true God's 
image. The true test of our religion is found in the answer to this question, a question that we've already been considering in our study of Colossians and a question I want to spend a little bit more time with today as we've gathered together. What do we delight in? Or maybe more accurately, who do we delight in? And our religious practice, what is motivating it and what is it revealing about the true nature of our hearts as a people? Because ultimately, friends, Bayleaf Baptist Church, if our religious practice is not motivated from and bringing about greater delight in Christ, we are missing something. I think Paul provides us with an opportunity this morning as we journey further into the book of Colossians to consider not only who we are as a people, but also what we do as a people because what we do reveals who we are. And everything we do, we need to be asking this question, is this an expression of our delight in Christ? Is our religion an expression of our living for the advancement of his name, his kingdom, his gospel? Or are we just doing all of this for some other reason? Because it's what we've always done. Because it's what's expected of us. Or maybe because it expresses what we ultimately really delight in. Religion is always revealing. I'm praying for us as a people that our religion, our expression of faith, as the people of God at Bayleaf Baptist Church will always reveal an ultimate delight in Christ. Why would we delight in anything else? Let's see how Paul challenges in this way, challenges us in this way. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Here's what the Word of God says. Therefore, in light of the fact that you who were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross, because he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Therefore, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, things like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no 
value and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, there is a lot of religious language in this text, a lot of religious behavior that Paul is addressing. And he says that much of what is being done, much of what is being encouraged by these false teachers that we've been talking about actually reveals some bad religion. It's religious practice that's birthed from unworthy delights, from focusing on the wrong thing. They're they're encouraging you, church in Colossae, to to have objects of worship that are not worthy of our worship, unworthy delights. Three in particular he mentions. Three expressions of worship, uh, three religious practices that are being birthed from unworthy delights. Firstly, some people are delighting in ritual. Some people are delighting, secondly, in severity to their bodies. And some people, finally, are delighting in experience, and none of them is worthy of ultimate delight. And he tells us why. So let's hear from Paul about why these delights are not worthy of our focus, not worthy of our worship, that someone else is worth our worship. For those who are delighting in ritual, look at verse 16. Paul says, Don't let anyone pass judgment on you and questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Some were delighting in partaking of festivals. New moon and Sabbath are mentioned in particular here. These are common festivals among the the people of God, the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And they were ritual practices that were meant to be expressions of gratitude and remembrance. They were meant to teach God's people about his ongoing provision for them. But in this case, these same rituals have become qualifiers for standing in the people of God. And some begin to question the love that believers had or the true sincerity of their faith if they did not partake in these festivals. It reminds me a lot of what was happening in the book of Galatians. When you have these Judaizers, the, the circumcision parties, as Paul calls them, who are saying to Christians, you've got to kind of convert to Judaism before you can convert to Christianity. So you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to observe these things, and then you can step into Christ. And Paul says that's a different gospel than what we are communicating as the people of God in Jesus, you're adding to the work of Christ. You're requiring someone to step into something else other than Christ in order to be a part of the people of God, in order to be saved. And these teachers are doing something similar here with this kind of Jewish, mystic, syncretic religion that they're teaching. You need to observe these festivals in order to be faithful to God. You need to be about these practices. Otherwise, I question your love for the Lord. Otherwise, I question the sincerity of your faith. Now listen, the festivals were a blessing. They did serve a purpose for the people of God. The New Moon Festival that's talked about in Numbers 10 and Numbers 28 was an opportunity once a month for the people of God to think about all they had received from the Lord and to consecrate themselves before the Lord, asking him to continue to provide for them. It was a way for families to fully commit themselves to God month by month. The Sabbath 
was a weekly reminder that we are not God. That he is the one who is always working and we should take time to reflect on how he has worked and and ask him to help us see the ways that he will work in the coming week. And this is not to mention other feasts like the Passover, the feasts of booths and, and others that outlined God's redemptive activity on behalf of his people. Somewhere along the way, these false teachers had failed to comprehend the purpose of the new covenant in Christ. And the place of these rituals in this new covenant. In fact, in many ways, the practice of worship for them had become more important than the object of worship. The practice had become more important than the object. Some were delighting in rituals. Some were delighting in severity to their bodies. They were delighting in abstinence and asceticism which is just basically severe self-discipline. Look at verses 16 and 18 once more. Don't pass judgment. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, about whether or not you eat or drink these things. And then verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Some were delighting in how they abstained from certain drinks or food. Some were delighting from how they abstained from any comfort or food for long periods of time, how they beat themselves in order to suppress their flesh. That somehow that brought them more favor with God and made them stand out among other men. But Paul reveals something deeper about this delight that in starving their flesh, they're actually feeding their flesh. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Go to the end. Puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. In denying and suppressing their flesh, they're actually revealing a false humility that's building up their flesh. Because they're comparing themselves to everyone else, saying, hey, everybody, come look how good I am. Come see how much better I am than you and my devotion to the Lord. And this is human wisdom. We think that people who are more severe, who are, who are more devoted in certain things are, are better. They must love the Lord more. And these people were doing it, adding to the requirements of God in order to make themselves big in the eyes of men. Some were delighting in experience. Some were starving themselves and beating themselves in order to come or to gain some other religious plane. Verse 18 shows us that people were longing for visions, a spiritual experience. In this case, they were likely seeking angels to help guide them into a new spiritual encounter. Angels, come help us. This angel, come help us. And then seeking the angels, they actually began worshiping the angels as ends in and of themselves. And the teachers were testifying to the power of these visions. Oh, you're not going to believe what you can experience if you get a hold of this angel or if you seek after this angel. But in reality, they were captivating people, not with the gospel, but with manipulation. Now, why are these unworthy delights? What do they reveal? 
that should cause us to stop in our tracks when we see this outside of ourselves but also within ourselves. Well, firstly, they're, they're rooted in human wisdom. It's what Paul says in verses 20 to 22. This is not gospel thinking that these teachers are putting forth. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Why are you allowing the wisdom of the world to dictate how you stand and how you get to a holy and righteous God when he's given you other wisdom? These have, verse 23, the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no, no value and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Don't you see how what these false teachers are saying is what every other false religion has said? That somehow you got to figure out in your own ability how to work your way to God. There's this gap that exists between us and God, and you've got to, through religious effort, through religious practice, work your way to God. But don't you also see how the gospel says something entirely differently? That no matter how hard you work, you can't make up that gap. You can't Earn your way to God. The only hope we have is if if God comes to us and praise be to God that he did. He sent his son. He covered the gap that we could not cover. He made a way where there was no way. And you're being captured again in this false teaching. You're, You're being tempted again to believe according to human wisdom, not godly wisdom. Don't Don't fall back into that trap by thinking you have to position yourself and your strength before a holy and righteous God. You can't do that. In reality, if you do that, what you're ultimately revealing is a proud heart. False humility, as we see in verse 18. It's all for show. Seeking the approval of man more than the approval of God. And at the end of the day, it's also leading to legalism. It's leading to judgmentalism. When you delight in the wrong thing and you consider your standing before God to be dependent upon your works, you're going to be comparing yourself to other people to to set yourself apart, hoping to catch the eye of God. And that's leading to legalism and judgmentalism. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Why is Paul having to say that? Because somebody's passing judgment. someone's disqualifying people from the people of God, not because of God's standard, but because of standards that have been added to God's standard, because of the wisdom of man. It's affecting the body, and Paul says, oh no, friends, you gotta be on guard. You gotta protect your heart and make sure that everything you do comes from a place of delight in Jesus and not from someone else. Church family, all our religious practice must come from a central delight in Christ that leads to greater delight in him. He is the true substance of our religion. He is the head from whom the whole body is nourished, verse 19. There's no greater growth. There's no other growth than the growth that can be found in Christ. He is where we grow in faith and understanding toward the things of God. Think about it. He is the fulfillment of what the festivals and feasts were meant to teach. They were meant to point to Christ. Look at verse 17. This is one of the most 
powerful, significant verses in all of the Bible. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And that one verse, Paul tells us the reason, the purpose for the Old Testament. As God gave it to us to help prepare us to understand what he was doing for us in Jesus. That's, that's why we need the Old Testament today, because through it, God gives us the language, the, the conceptions to, to think about how we have been blessed and saved in Christ. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament gives us the language of the lamb and blood and how the shedding of innocent blood can cover the sin of the guilty. The law gave us the standard of God's holiness and also revealed how even God's chosen people could not meet that holy standard apart from something changing inside their own heart. Even all the major figures of the Old Testament, the so-called heroes of the faith, were all meant to lead us to the great hero of the Bible, whose name is Jesus Christ. And, and these, these festivals, it's true of them as well. Take the Passover, for instance. Do you remember what the Passover was about? How the people of God were supposed to remember how God passed over the homes of his people who put blood on their door when he was bringing judgment upon Egypt. And how in that moment he released his people from the bondage of the Egyptian people, led them through the wilderness and into a land of promise. Don't you see how that story, that, that action in redemptive history is painting a picture for us of the greater work that he has done for us in Christ? How we have only been saved through the blood of a pure and spotless lamb, only when we're covered by his blood are we freed from the judgment and wrath of God and he has led us out of the oppression of our sin, out of our captivity to sin through this wilderness awaiting the day when Christ will take us home to give us a greater land of promise. That whole moment in history is a picture of God's greater cosmic work in Christ on our behalf. And the same is true of the Sabbath. Jesus is our rest where we can reflect on the work and the activity of God and rest in that work because it's finished. The new moon, Jesus is a fulfillment of that as in him we get to think about God's provision for us and his ongoing provision for us as he sustains us as his people. Yes, there were, there were purposes to this these festivals. There were purposes to these observances. They were to teach you, remind you, they used to set you apart, but in Christ, they have been fulfilled. They no longer set you apart. The work of Christ sets you apart. And you have to learn, in light of the gospel, the purpose of these things and why God gave them to us. You don't have to do them anymore to earn the favor of God. They don't set you apart. Christ sets you apart. Now, that doesn't mean that you're free from the moral obligations of the Old Testament. We still have God telling us what is right and what is wrong, and those things don't change. But the ritual requirements that were used to set us apart and, and keep us in good standing before the Lord, those have been fulfilled in Christ. And as it relates to the severity of the body, 
to abstinence, to asceticism, to trying to beat down your flesh. These practices have an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion, asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, they're just the opposite side of the same coin. You're seeking freedom in the midst of bondage. These, these men, these false teachers, they're consumed with false humility. They're still trying to please men and set themselves apart over other men, thinking their religion, their obedience, is what sets them apart. There's no, there's no more humbling story in the Bible, to me, than the story of the thief on the cross. Do you remember this? When Jesus says to him, in light of his confession, today you will be with me in paradise. And I was listening to Alistair Begg, again, one of my other favorite pastors in America, for all those, he's from Scotland. He was talking about this story in particular, and he's like, can you imagine what took place when the thief on the cross got to heaven and the angel said, okay, now why do you deserve to come into heaven? And he says, I don't know. So what do you mean you don't know? So what, what did you do to earn acceptance into heaven? And he calls his little angel manager over and says, hey, we got a situation here. I don't know what to do with this. And the angel says, well, have you read the Bible front to back? No, I don't even know what the Bible is. Did you master the doctrines of the faith? No, I didn't. Did you live a life of selflessness, helping to feed the poor, those kind of things? He says, no. He said, well, why should we let you in? And the guy says, I don't know. The guy on the cross, the other guy on the cross, said I could come in. And that's why I should come in, because he said it. Now, I'm not dismissing the, the whole of the Christian life and the, the behaviors and activities that we're supposed to engage in in order to please the Lord. But what I am saying is that those things don't get you entry into heaven. You're standing before God and your entrance into our eternal rest is only because of the work of Christ. We boast in him, not in ourselves. Let us remember that his body was broken so that we could live in joy, abundance, and fullness, life eternal in him. And remember, and we'll talk more about this next week, you can never control in your own strength your sinful will enough to free you from sin. It's only found in Jesus. And to those who are seeking experience, to those thinking that you need another way to get to God or new, some new spiritual plane, remember, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Nowhere else. You don't need visions. You don't need another mediator. You don't need angels. You need Jesus. You can't get more of God than you get in Christ because in Christ you get all of him. Don't go around him. Press further into him. Now this is not to discount. I don't want you to hear me discounting and saying this. The role of emotions in our worship. God gave us emotions. We are emotive people and we should use our emotions in worship we just shouldn't leave them unchecked our emotions must be guided by truth because our hearts are deceitful and wicked never listen to someone who tells you follow your heart because it will lead you to destruction but when our hearts are captivated by christ and the truth of the gospel all of our emotions can be rightly directed toward 
Christ. So seek Jesus and you will get God. He is the only way. So Paul's saying, why are you so consumed with all of this unworthy, unworthy religious activity? Why are you allowing yourself to be tempted by a false gospel leading you away from Christ when you've seen all that you have in Jesus? Guard your heart for Christ. He is the substance, the substance of our religion, of our practice, everything we do as a people. And I thought this past week as I was reading this and talking with other pastors and ministers and our staff and members in our church, I just thought, what a timely word this is for us today, what Paul's offering us. Even though it was written thousands of years ago, how important this message is for us, Bayleaf Baptist Church. Think about what we've experienced in the past year and a half. So much of our religious practice has been interrupted because of COVID. And while it's been frustrating in one hand, it's also provided us an opportunity to sit before the Lord and ask him to evaluate what we do and why we do it. We gotta remember what God says in Hosea 6.6, that he desires steadfast love more than sacrifice, knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. And if we don't have the right heart, when we do what we do, it doesn't please him. And that's what we wanna do, right? That's why we gather, because we wanna please the Lord. So, Why do we do what we do? Why is it important for us to gather? Why is it important for us to to sing? Why is it important for us to do these religious practices? And are we doing them for the right reason? I want to challenge us to be careful to not fall into the trap of delighting in the wrong things. And let me just say before I begin this, I say this all with a heart of love pastoring us, hoping the word of God will speak to us, to challenge us to make sure that our hearts are united and set on Christ. That is the spirit with which I I wanna offer this and the spirit with which I hope you will receive it. So let me remind us this morning that it is possible for us as a people to still delight wrongly in ritual. We can still delight wrongly in tradition, becoming more concerned with practice than the person, becoming more concerned with the means or mechanisms of worship than the object of our worship. Now, there is some benefit to tradition. There is some benefit to ritual considering the way that things have always been done. Many of the things that we continue to do today were given to us by God and handed down to us by our fathers and mothers in the faith. But why do we continue them today? Do they point us to Christ? Do we allow them to point our hearts to Christ? And do they stir our hearts for Christ in more than other ways? Or do we engage in them because of the nostalgia that's attached to them? Because of the memories they bring up about worshiping with family or worshiping in a certain way? Or preference? Do we engage in this because it's what I want? Sometimes, if we're not careful, even in religious practice, 
we can engage in what pleases us more than what pleases God. Now listen, there are of course non-negotiables. There are things that we're gonna do every time we gather because God demands this of us. We're gonna pray, we're gonna preach, we're gonna gather, we're gonna fellowship, we're gonna have the ordinances. I wanna challenge us, church family. Let's not let the means get in the way of the meaning. Because how many churches do you know that have divided over practice rather than doctrine? Have you seen this? Churches that split over preference, not what is dictated by Scripture. I remember growing up, I remember the first time someone read in our pulpit at my church in Northeast Louisiana from a version other than the King James Version. And people getting up in arms about it. How could they read from some other version? If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Well, you know, it's a translation. And there are so many great translations that, that God has blessed us with to help understand the nuances of his word. Why would we want to be upset about that? And yet people were mad, not because the King James is more inspired than other versions, but because it's what they had always had. And they were talking about control and what pleased them versus more, more than what pleased God. And of course, the the greatest evidence of this, guys, and you know it, is music and the style of music and how we want music in a certain way or in a certain manner with certain instruments or certain lyrics. We've got to be careful, friends, that we don't divide over preference, but that we recognize, listen to this, can you imagine how much God delights in the millions of people who gather today to give worship to him in different languages, different cultural expressions, different instruments, all declaring their love for him? And I just want us to be careful that we don't come to a place where what delights God becomes undelightful to us. Because we are marrying our approach to worship or what we prefer in worship to things that are outside of Christ. What are we revealing when we say that we can only delight in worship in one way? If God delights in multiple ways of worship, now I'm not, I'm not talking about the lyrics, not right? There are some things that we gotta be in agreement on about the truth that are in these songs. But when we're talking about instruments, we're talking about arrangements, Let's be careful that our preference doesn't get in the way of unity for the sake of the gospel. We can delight in things. And let me just say this. This is not just a quote-unquote traditional problem. This is also a contemporary music problem as well. Because in casting off restraint, casting off tradition, you can also reveal a hardened, sinful heart. So we gotta, we got to be thinking about unity and appreciating the many ways that we can express our love and devotion to Christ and think about how all of these many ways as we are led in worship can stir our hearts in greater ways for Christ. We want to be open-handed in worship, right? Not close-handed because we want to make sure that God is the ultimate 
object of our worship. It's for him, right? We're, we're trying to please him, not us. And we can still delight in severity, friends. Not only in ritual, the way that we've done certain things or certain practices, we can also delight in severity. We can think our abstinence or asceticism sets us apart as better. All the while thinking our pride is actually humility. We can think we're godly because of what we don't do or what we do. We can think other people are godlier than us or more worthy of of Christ's affections because of how they, in our mind, control their appetites or will, how they don't indulge in certain things. We, We look at outward appearances often without any regard for what's happening on the inside. But listen, godliness is not defined by what we think or what we see. Godliness is defined by God. And sometimes, even though it's well-meaning, we can add to the requirements of Scripture and begin to consider what was wise to now be law. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm going I'm to get it all in the Baptist world today, okay? So y'all, y'all okay with me? Um, there was a time where, as a Baptist, you were not supposed to dance. Do you, any of you experience this? Uh, and some, I think people still think that way, right? And um, when, I was, when I was in school, my, my Christian school, we did not have dances. We had banquets because they didn't want us to have an opportunity to engage in anything that would be ungodly. And so here's what the, here's what the thinking was. We know there are certain things that are clearly off limits that God clearly says are wrong. And it's possible that dancing could lead to those things. And so we're going to spread the fence of God's word a little bit to say, we're not even going to let you dance because we don't want to put temptation in front of you that will lead to things that are clearly ungodly. And I think there was good intent behind that. I think there were some loving parents that desire for their kids to walk in holiness that thought, let's not even give them an opportunity to stumble. But what happened is over time, what was wisdom became law. To where if you did dance then you are suddenly not a good Christian. In fact, I'm questioning your love for the Lord at all, or if you have a sincere faith. How dare you move your heels or tap your feet? How dare you let your legs go to the two times the beat? You know, if I'm looking at you worshiping and dancing, suddenly even David's disqualified from being in the faith. So, what was wisdom moved to law. Now, I'm going to go a little bit further, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, it's going to be okay. <laughs> We've also done this with alcohol. Okay, now listen, I want, as I say this, I'm not debating the merits of drinking or not drinking alcohol this morning. I'm hitting at the heart, the legalistic heart that drives our approach to alcohol, okay? That's what I'm going for. So don't, I, don't want you to get, I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees, Okay? I think many of us in this room recognize the danger of alcohol. We've seen how it's destroyed homes. We've seen how it's destroyed lives. We've seen how it it captivates and people turn to it to ail what only Christ and God can ultimately fix, right? And we know the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Don't get drunk. And so here's what we've decided. We know the danger we know there's probably not a great benefit to it, so let's just, let's just move the fence a little bit and say, 
it's probably not wise for you to drink because it can lead to getting drunk and other destructive things. So let's not do that. And again, I think there's some wisdom there. Jordan and I don't have alcohol in our home. I would challenge to think, okay, what's the benefit of this? And what's the possible destruction? We also got to think about witness and things of that nature. But I just want to be careful here that we don't let wisdom become law because what's happened is that we've, we've moved the fence to a point where we think that where we've moved the fence is actually what God said. And that's dangerous because what it creates is judgmentalism. What it creates is disqualification to where we're disqualifying qualified brothers and sisters for roles in our church based on what we think, not what God says. I had a a friend told me one time, well, Jared, we want to hold ourselves to a higher standard. And I said, then scripture? Doesn't God get to define the standard? Now, again, I'm not dismissing the call to wisdom. I'm not dismissing the call to think about the witness. But what I am saying is that we cannot say more than what God has said. And if we begin to disqualify people and look down upon people because convictionally, they are in a different place than we are. There's something wrong in our hearts, friends. Because we can look at somebody and say, at a restaurant, oh, they must not love the Lord as much as I do. And then there's that quiet little whisper in our hearts, oh, I'm so glad you're not like them. You're better. You're better than them. Because you don't do that. Oh, be careful, friends, how we can let these things move into our hearts. We can still delight in severity and we can still delight in experience. We can seek emotion and feeling over truth. We can think that feeling is spiritual growth or good. Now, I don't want to dismiss emotion. Again, I'm not saying that emotions don't matter. I am saying they're not ultimate and that they're deceptive if not held in check with gospel truth. Have you ever heard someone leave church and say something like this? Man, I just didn't feel anything today. I just don't, the spirit wasn't there. I I just didn't get anything out of it. I just didn't feel anything today. And I always want to press into that and say, okay, well, I know we can quench the spirit, but was Christ exalted? Was Was the word of God preached? The people of God pray together? they declare worship to God? Well, if so, I think your statement may say a lot more about you than the church. Would you not feel the drums? Did you not get enough of the show? What was it that you're missing? What is it that you're looking for? Because hopefully any faithful church is going to give you the things you need to be looking for. Let's make sure that we're not pursuing or longing or looking to anything other than Christ to allow us what we can experience only in him. Friends, we are called to delight in Jesus. And when we do, everything else finds its proper place, right? Because there are many ways to express our love for and devotion to him. There are good traditions. There are good rituals. There are numerous songs and many instruments and prayers, gatherings, books, poems that help us as a people remember and be instructed in the gospel that are expressions of our love for Jesus and stir our hearts for Jesus. There are are things that we are called to remove in our lives. 
but out of a love for God rooted in Christ because of the favor of God, not to earn it. And God does want us to know him and experience him in personal ways that that stir our hearts and bring about emotions. He wants us to fellowship with him, but that only happens in Jesus. Pursue him. He is the door. He's the door. Religion can be good. It can be good when it expresses a heart for Christ and when it stirs our heart for Christ. But religion can also be dangerous. If we let tradition and legalism and judgmentalism root in our hearts to where our practice of worship doesn't bring unity, but actually brings division. I want to turn over to Luke chapter 18. I haven't talked about Luke 18 yet, have I? My third time. There's a picture here that I think gives us a good warning. Verses 9 to 14 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember this story? Jesus is telling a parable. It says, two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed as if to be seen. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Will we humble ourselves before the Lord? Ask him to reveal those places where we're trusting in the wrong thing and delighting in the wrong thing so that ultimately our delight is in Christ. Religion is revealing. What does it reveal about us? Wherever you are, you bow, bow your heads, spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond. Have you ever delighted in Christ? Have you ever believed that you could not work your way to God, but trusted in Jesus alone and his work to cover the gap that exists between you and God? If you haven't, I just invite you today to repent and believe in Jesus, to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to be saved. Step into him and his work and know exactly where you stand before a holy and righteous God. For the rest of us, why are you here? Why are we doing what we do? Why is this important for us? Is it because of a delight in Christ and a desire to delight in him more? Or there may be recesses of our heart that are showing a delight in something else. Why would you want to delight in ritual? Why would you want to delight in your ability to suppress your will? Why would you want to delight in experience when you can delight in Christ? And he is truly delightful. 
Father, would you help us set our hearts on you in Jesus? Find us faithful, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.